It's always a joy to get together with you all. If we haven't met, my name is Charles Johnson, and I'm one of the pastors here at Red Mountain, and I would love to meet you. So please do come up and say hi, introduce yourself to me. I would, I would uh, really enjoy that. Let me begin by asking you a question. Um, when, and this is to all of you, not just those I haven't met yet, when was the last time uh, that you had a friend, someone you cared about deeply, uh, that you were on the outs with? You know, somewhere along the way, either you did something or they did something or maybe a little bit of both, uh, but there is uh, something happened and there is now what feels like a large obstacle that's sitting in the middle of your relationship. And if you're to go forward with them as you'd like to, you know that that, that unfinished business is going to have to be dealt with. And that's going to take some courage. As we begin uh, to look at Peter and re-enter our series on the life of Peter, that might be the best way to describe where Peter is at in his relationship with Jesus. Uh, the, the last memories that Peter has of Jesus before Jesus goes to the cross are when he lock eye, locks eyes with, with Jesus across a courtyard. And in that moment, Peter realized that he did exactly what Jesus said he would do. He had denied Jesus three times. And then Jesus went on to go to the cross. Can you imagine the pain of that kind of memory? Uh, That's a memory that haunts, right? That's an ache of the heart that doesn't just go away. But here's what's interesting. The morning of Jesus's resurrection, he met with two people. We know that he went to go, he spoke with Mary, and we know that he went and met with Peter. That just, just like God pursued Adam and Eve in the garden after their sin, Jesus goes and pursues Peter after he denied him in a garden. And so the Peter that we look at here in this passage, at least knows Jesus is alive. He's met with him. He's spoken with him. At least knows Jesus is alive. And at least at Jesus' invitation has begun to work on whatever unfinished business exists between the two of them. So what we're looking at is a picture of the relationship that Peter has with Jesus as Jesus' grace has his way with him. Let's look together. This is John 21. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. 
So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh Jesus, I pray that you would help us as we lean into this passage to see you. Just as the disciples saw you, I pray that you would help us to grow in our love for you, to hear words of correction and comfort, that we would be strengthened by the nourishment of your word. And would you help me, your servant, to serve humbly in this place, uh, to give words to these people that honor you, and help me to love them well. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was having a conversation with a friend last week. Uh, he's a, just a great guy, one of those friends that you can really relax around. <laughs> and after talking about some of the challenges in our lives, he said this. He asked me this question that kind of stuck with me. I want to give it to you. He said, if you weren't doing well, who would know? Who would know? Who'd be able to tell? And then he added this. He said, uh, I ask because most of us are great at covering up our wounds and it's like a survival mechanism for us. Now, here's the reason I'm bringing this up. Uh, We're looking at Peter in the very near aftermath of his greatest failure. We talked about it last week. Um, And it's something, as I said, that you don't just walk away from. But as we look at this passage, what do we see him doing? And he's gathered up with his old friends. Uh, He's fishing with them. Um, And it's like uh, either he's acting like he's okay when he's not really okay. Or Jesus said something to him that has restored him in some way during the time that he had with them. And here's the thing about Peter. I just don't think he's great at hiding. Like... Have you looked at any of these stories that we've looked at and thought, uh, and, and thought, I don't know what Peter's thinking right now. Like he's always expressing himself out loud, processing out loud in front of everybody. He's kind of impulsive in this way, what he's experiencing. You, you, you know Peter, we know Peter is a guy who lives with his heart wide open. And so as we look at this story, I think what we're seeing is we are tracing the work of Jesus's resilient grace as it operates on Peter. Because everything in this story tells me that despite what Peter did, 
Jesus is not done with Peter yet. And you see it in where he is. You see it in what he learns. And you see it in what he's given. Those are my three points. Where he is, what he learns, and what he's given. First, where he is. The the first few verses of this passage set a really important context for us. For everything else that we're going to look at. So I would just, I'm going to talk about where we find him, who he's with, and why he's there. So where we find him, well, he's by the Sea of Tiberias. This is another name for the Sea of Galilee. It could be a portion of the sea that was renamed, but it was, a, it really, he's on the shore of Galilee. He's back in Galilee, and a lot of important things happened in Galilee. This is where Peter's from. This is his home homeland. This is where Peter met Jesus for the first time. Uh, A lot of critical moments in uh, Jesus's ministry happened in this place. Um, And we find him with several other disciples as well. You see that Thomas is there, Nathaniel's there, the sons of Zebedee are James and John. They're there. Curiously, two other unnamed disciples are also there. Uh, so we have seven of the 11 disciples, 11 after Judas left, are, uh, are all regathered, all back in Galilee. And it's important that we see this because when Peter first denied Jesus, he doesn't just abandon Jesus, but he essentially abandons the rest of the disciples. Like when, when we think about our sin, our sin, it never has simple individual effects. It's always impacting the people around us. And Peter harmed the rest of these disciples when he did what he did. And yet here we find him reunited with them together on the side of the lake. And he's not just with them, but he seems to have resumed his position among them. Them. We've gotten to know Peter as a, a kind of a spokesman for the disciples, even a, a leader of the disciples. And in verse three, it seems like he's still the same. He still has the same position amongst them. He says, I'm going to go fishing. And they say, good idea. We're all going with you. It's like nothing has changed. And the logical question for us to ask is, what are they doing there in the first place? It could look as if they're just going home again and they're looking to start their lives over again, wondering what's next. It could look like one of my favorite characters in The Princess Bride. Uh, It's not even close, but Inigo Montoya is the best character in in The Princess Bride. If you're not familiar, he's a, he's a charismatic Spaniard who's very good with the sword and he's hilarious. But at some point, his leader falls, all his band scatters, and he goes back to the beginning, right? He, you find him in his hometown, he's drinking a lot, and he's just wondering what's next for his life. And the, the stage of this could lead us to believe that's what the disciples are about. But the disciples in this passage aren't actually looking to start their lives over again. They went back to Galilee because they're wondering what Jesus has next for them. The night, remember we talked about it last week, the night before Jesus was taken, he said to his disciples, the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter And I will go before you to Galilee, and I will meet you there. 
They're there because they're standing up and they're offering themselves once again for whatever Jesus has for them. There's a measure of courage in that, isn't there? Like we've already seen all the ways that following Jesus can be dangerous and scary. And so when you see them gathered on the side of a lake in Galilee waiting for Jesus, they're saying that they know that life with Jesus, even as dangerous as it might be, is worth more than life anywhere else. And so when we look at Peter, we see him standing up saying, here I am. I'm yours. If you will have me, you can do whatever you see fit with me. Your mission is my mission. That's a vulnerable place for them, him to be in, isn't it? Will you have me? Peter's not the only one that blew it that night. Like Peter's the one who most famously blew it, but all of the disciples abandoned Jesus in the night before. Thomas was also somebody who persisted in unbelief. We know him as doubting Thomas, right? James and John, the son of Zebedee, are known for being combative personalities. But yet, these are the people. These are the people that Jesus gathers together when he thinks about moving forward and establishing the church. These are the people he uses. James Boyce says this. He says, these are the ones who do Christian work. Normal people. With all the failings we are heir to, to not fictitious characters of superhuman faith and fortitude. And it was beside these waters that Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will never cast them out, for this is the will of my Father in heaven. You want to know what the, the secret to perseverance in the faith is? It's right here. It's the preserving grace of Jesus that holds us. That he will never cast you out. He will never, hear this, he will never cast you out. That he preserves us with his grace and it holds us, keeping you secure forever. You cannot outrun his grace. And I think it's with the peace of grace that you see these disciples get in the boat that night. Now, no doubt they were returning to something familiar. They were trained professional fishermen, okay? Uh, They probably also needed some money. Uh, And this was the way that they knew how to get it. And it appears that Jesus was waiting for this to happen because that's when he appears on the shore to them. And it's from there he gives them a lesson. What did Peter learn from Jesus that morning when they throw the nets over and Jesus fills their nets with fish? They fish all night and they get skunked again. If you're familiar with these stories, what does this story remind you of? When Peter first met Jesus, it was in the morning after fishing all night and not catching anything. Um, And then Jesus takes them back out on the water and he tells them where to throw his nets. It's very familiar. And they caught so many fish that the boat almost capsized. Uh, And then Jesus said at that point, leave it all behind. Uh, From now on, you are fishers of men. That's when Jesus gives Peter a whole new identity. 
and he drafts him into a new vocation. You were once catching fish for death, but now you're catching men for life with me. He says, that's who you are now. He gives them a renewed purpose. And so in verse 6, in this passage, when Jesus tells them to throw their nets over the right side of the boat, and their nets were full so that they couldn't bring them in the boat, Jesus isn't just saying, I'm not done with you yet. He's saying, you're not done with me yet. He's saying the mission goes on. You're still a fisher of men. He's continuing Peter's uh, vocation. And in the Bible, this is really important. In the Bible, the, the, the chaos of the sea represents the chaos of the world. And the metaphor that Jesus often used uh, for the work his disciples did communicated that when you go, that you will go out uh, uh, into the world catching fish for Jesus. That we're all fishers of men. And the sea represents this dangerous world that we're headed out into. And it's important that we see that Jesus made this claim that you're still who I say you are amidst great failure. Do you think that Jesus knew how their night had gone when he says, did you catch any fish? It's, it's, it's amazing to me that the disciples didn't realize who Jesus was until they saw the fish in the boat. Because it almost sounds like a, a very, if, you didn't, if I didn't know who you were on the shore, you calling me children, do you have any fish? That sounds very familiar, doesn't it? But he says, children, do you have any fish? And they said, no. And and listen, I'm not a fisherman. I dabble a little bit. I always enjoy it. But we, I I can speak from experience, we're not honest people when it comes to giving people a report on how the day fishing went, okay? Like, if if it went well, we don't want to tell you about it because then we're going to give away a really good spot. And if it didn't go well, we don't want to tell you about that either for obvious reasons. So it's to the disciples' credit that they said, no, we didn't catch any fish. They were totally honest. And did that failure on their part turn Jesus off in any way? Like, did it make them see, did their failure make them seem any less worthy in his eyes? Malcolm Muggeridge says this, and if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Or if you don't get it, email me, I'll send it to you. He says, Christianity from Golgotha onwards has been the sanctification of failure. Christianity from Golgotha onwards has been the sanctification of failure. That failure is the essential condition of spiritual progress. Why? Because the more our failures wake us up to the reality of who we are as weak people, as those who are prone to brokenness, as those who struggle with difficulty, the more we're brought face to face with the resilient and sustaining grace of Jesus Christ. Paul says we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Y'all, we are jars of clay. We're fragile. We're easily broken. 
And it's in our failures that the treasure of knowing who God is is easy to see. Like, how can we talk about the goodness of Jesus without also being honest about all the ways that we've blown it? How can we... How can we understand how truly gracious God is if we don't have an intimate understanding of how bad that we need it? This is what, this is what one person calls a poverty of spirit, that we, we learn to make little of ourselves in order to make much of Jesus. And in this picture, if this is the picture that we're given of what it looks like, uh, to, uh, uh, for Jesus to call his uh, his disciples into mission, then what is this telling us? Like, as we think about the mission that we're involved in and the church that we're a part of, it's telling us that no matter how hard we try, and no matter what words we use, or how much skill we bring to the table, or how well thought out our techniques are, that if Jesus doesn't put fish in the net, none of it matters. That's what Peter's learning in this passage. And not only is he learning that Jesus isn't done with them, he's also learning that all of life is lived in constant dependence on who Jesus is. That not only is he preserved by Jesus' grace, but he's sustained by grace. Now that's a hard lesson, isn't it? And that, that's a hard lesson. For, for, those who, for those who are raised to believe that maturity is either your, like this is the definition of maturity that we've grown up in. Either you're lazy or you're making something of yourself. Like we, we, we grow up being averse to the idea of dependence. And here we're being, ta- we're being told that all of life is lived in constant dependence every moment on the sustaining grace of Jesus that's given to you. That, I'll say that's a humbling lesson, but it's a really good one. And you get a sense for just how Peter feels about that as we look at what he's been given. Because when he comes back to the shore, you just get this wonderful picture of a reunion with Jesus. And if Peter has any remaining reluctance toward being around Jesus, you certainly don't see it in this passage, do you? This is, again, this is another one of those stories that we love about Peter where he's living with his heart wide open. Because as soon as their nets fill with fish, somebody yells, it's John, the disciple whom Jesus loved is John. John yells, it's the Lord. And Peter throws on his clothes and jumps out of the boat immediately. Like you see his, like all he wants is to be near Jesus. There's not a, a, a molecule of reluctance in Peter's heart when it comes to being around Jesus again. I love that he threw, I love that he threw on his clothes before he gets in the water. That's just hilarious to me. But really, that's probably because of a sense of propriety. He has so much reverence for Jesus. A Jewish man wouldn't draw near to his rabbi not being fully clothed. And so Peter's even aware of that. And he throws on his outer garment, probably his fishing coat, and jumps in the water uh, about a hundred yards away and swims so he goes straight to Jesus. 
And if there was any obstacle in the relationship between Jesus and Peter, I just don't see it here in this passage. Instead, what we see is joy. That Jesus, as he operates on him with grace, has, has taken away any remaining despair Peter had and replaced it with joy. And, and it's interesting to me that when he gets to shore, verse 9 tells us that there's a charcoal fire. That's really interesting. It's, it's, it's interesting and specific that he calls it a charcoal fire. There's only one other place in John where a charcoal fire is mentioned. You know where? In the courtyard. Where Peter denied Jesus three times and says that he was warming himself by a charcoal fire. And they say that the olfactory senses are especially powerful in evoking memories. And I just wonder... What memories might have flooded Peter's mind as he first smelled that charcoal fire as he got to, got to shore? What is, what is Jesus doing with Peter? He's offering a picture of redemption. He is, he is taking Peter's memory of his greatest failure and he's replacing it with the joy of being with him. And then he says, bring some of that fish that you caught. And there are two really interesting things that stand out to me about this. First of all, did they catch the fi- They caught the fish? They bring some of that fish you caught? Like, is he giving them credit for catching the fish? And then the other reason is this. Why is he asking for fish when he already has fish? It says he already had fish on the fire. He doesn't need their fish. But instead he says... Bring some of that fish that you caught. And Simon Peter goes and drags a net full of 150 fish. Like he's so excited to show Jesus all the fish that he caught. What does this make you think of? Jesus just looking at the catch and celebrating it with the disciples. You have, uh, I see a father looking down with pride at what his son brought in. And the heavenly overtones of this scene are almost overwhelming. Listen, the disciples knew that it was the Lord by faith. They realized what had happened, and now they're stand, they can't see him. The, the text is very specific. They couldn't see him originally, but now they're on the shore with him. What they once knew by faith, they now know by sight. Jesus is breaking bread for the disciples. If you remember the story of the Emmaus Road, how did Jesus become known to the disciples? They recognized him by the breaking of the bread. And the offerings of his disciples are now being celebrated. Um, All of this is pointing us toward a vision of where the church goes. And the, 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 the life of hope. That we can have as those who labor amongst the chaos of the world. Jesus brings them all home and throws a party on the side of the lake. And he celebrates what they have done. He celebrates what they did. You see that picture? He celebrates what they did. I've got a friend who loved to fish. He just loves it. I love to fish too, but he does it a lot. And he used to talk to me whenever we went fishing together about how he learned to fish from his dad. 
And if you've ever tried to teach a child to fish, you know that it needs to be easy. Uh, because patience runs, uh, runs thin really quick in those moments. So you need to take them to a place where they'll have success immediately and totally enjoy it. So what he did was his, his father took him as a little boy out to the end of a dock where he knew there were all these little brim, like just little brim that you could catch with a little hook and a little piece of a worm and throw it in and it would get hammered immediately by a brim. And, uh, and the, the, as a little boy, he just always had a lot of fun doing that with his dad. Uh, but some days it was slow and he would go and what he didn't know when he was a little boy but found out later was that his dad would do everything. He would bait the hook, he would uh, take the fish off and if it was a slow day when his son wasn't looking he'd actually put the fish back on the hook and swing it out real quick into the water and then he'd give the pole to his son and then it's, and say look you got a fish on already and the son, little boy would pull it out of the water and the father would say Look at the fish that you caught. And they would go home. And they would tell stories. And eat dinner together. And even though the father did almost everything. The son delighted in every moment. So much so that even as a grown man. He loved to tell that story. About how he caught fish with his dad. Listen, my hope for you, as you look at this reunion celebration that Jesus gives his disciples, that you will look with hope for your own. That you will look forward to the day when what you knew by faith, you'll know by sight. And that when Jesus, with his wounded hands, will break bread for you. And yes, you will present fish to Jesus that he put on your hook. And he will look back at you. And he'll say, come. Let's have breakfast together. Let me pray. Lord, what a picture of forgiveness. And what a picture of reunion hope. Will you help us to trust grace, to trust your grace, even in our weaknesses? Be with us in our constant dependence on you. Show us yourself and anchor us in hope for the day when we'll be celebrating with you on the side of a lake. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.